0: Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. You're watching Squawk Box. The S&P closing at a record high. That's the seventh positive day in a row boosted by Tesla. But IBM shares wave on the Dow, which moves lower on the day. Uh, Evergrande averting a potential default as the Chinese property developer reportedly sends funds for a key interest payment, which is due on Saturday. That sent the shares in the group a little higher.
1: A strong demand for luxury products helps L'Oreal's third quarter sales forecast. The French group's CEO says that the key market's appetite for beauty is not satisfied. Snapchat sink by over 20% in extended trade, pulling other social media groups lower, as the company warns Apple's recent privacy changes are disrupting its advertising business.
0: And EU leaders criticise Poland in a row over the role of European law as they gather in Brussels. But Poland's Prime Minister says he will not bow to pressure. We will not act under the pressure of blackmail. We're ready for dialogue. We do not agree to constantly expanding the scope of competences. But we will of course talk about how to resolve the current disputes in agreement and in dialogue. And we'll be giving you coverage of that leaders' meeting, obviously, throughout the programme this morning and talking a little bit more about this difference of opinion with Poland. But let's just uh, catch you up on what happened in the markets overnight. Uh, One of the early notes I've seen this morning, talking about the China syndrome affecting European markets, concerns obviously about Evergrande and whether it would make this uh, offshore bond payment due Saturday, um, perhaps upsetting the apple cart when it comes to the European trading session. But when you look at the US, um, difficult to see that really having much of a drag on the way the broader S&P 500 performed here. There were some individual issues as far as the Dow Jones Industrial Average is concerned. And we'll talk about that IBM story. And of course, there are some individual issues here uh, to do with the the NASDAQ as well. And we'll talk about this story. The NASDAQ, though, managed to close the session up six tenths of one percent. But later in the day, I think we started to see some reaction in the technology stocks from the big decline we saw in Snap. And very interesting, this all comes back to the way Apple is adjusting its privacy settings and what ultimately that means for companies that hope they will benefit from uh, Apple's own marketplace. So let's move on and let's just show you what happened in the treasuries because we are monitoring the curve very closely, as you know here, just to see one, what the shape of the curve is, two, to what extent the two-year note is repricing expectations around interest rate hikes and tapering. Uh, And as we look at the uh, 10-year and just focus on this a pivotal yield here, which is so important for pricing mortgages and, and so on and so forth. We're one spot six eight here, and we do seem to be now in a new range for this 10-year Treasury, somewhere between 160 and 170 on the yield. So we'll just continue to watch that here. The 30-year bond, so a lot of... Um, Longer term investors talking about whether you should be further out on the curve here and you should be owning something like the 30 year, possibly even the 10 year. They largely sit in a camp that suggests that we are starting to see growth rolling over. And if you want secure yield from somewhere, maybe this is somewhere that you go to get that. What about the dollar? How's that uh, nascent uh, run for the dollar faring at the moment? Well, it's... It's pretty much flat across the board here, isn't it? I could walk up and down this wall and wax lyrical about some of the different drivers, like, for example, the market's still speculating on whether the Bank of England is intending to go with an interest rate hike in November. But I think that would be a bit misleading because, quite frankly, given these slight moves, I think there's uh, not a great deal that's giving the dollar direction here or many of the other currencies for that matter. So what about the Asian markets? As we think about holding risk across the weekend, how are we doing in Asia? Well, I talked about that Evergrande story in the headline. We're going to talk about it a little bit more. We'll get Emily in our Hong Kong bureau to uh, uh, give us a report on that as well. But it's just starting to um, lift sentiment a little bit, that idea that maybe Evergrande has already earmarked the funds to make that bond payment over the weekend. What about the opening calls then? Can the European markets find another gear? For this Friday session as we run into the weekend, well, the early call as far as these European markets are concerned is that we will get a positive start to the trading session. And again, if the fixation is what's going on with Evergrande and the Chinese economy, then perhaps the messaging at the moment will provide some early support, Karen. Very good morning to you.
1: Jeff, good morning to you. And what a busy week it has been on the earnings front. We've had so much news crossing from the C-suite and a lot of the commentary really focusing on cost pressures. So the commentary from the Fed important at this point as to whether those cost pressures have triggered enough inflationary concerns at the Fed to move interest rate policy at some point. And the Federal Reserve's Raphael Bostic has told CNBC he sees an interest rate hike coming later next year as he warns inflation pressures will last well into next year.
0: This is gonna last
2: into 2022. Uh, part of what uh, the the ultimate answer to how long this will take will be, uh, will be how quickly we resolve some of the, 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 the coronavirus issues as well as some of the supply chain challenges that are happening at a global level. I'm gonna keep an open mind. You know, uh, we talk a lot about data dependence and letting uh, the evidence show us the way. I'm really gonna lean into that as we get into the first half of 2022.
1: Let's get some thoughts with Paul Gambles, who is co founder and managing director of MBMG Group. Paul, nice to catch up with you again. We have had mm-hmm. a, a very busy week, and I mentioned just how thick it has been on the ground with earnings, and that's from the States, from here. The commentary has been incredible, talking about those pricing pressures, which obviously starts with the raw material side and then works its way through the whole supply chain and impacts some of these companies. We've seen some of them try to pass on those prices with higher prices for customers. What do you make of the cycle we're now seeing around inflation?
2: Yeah, good morning, Karen. It's um, obviously like most things, it's, it's complex because it's not linear. You know, there's this sort of bullwhip effect where we see um, – supply shock feedback uh but it's uh it's it's you know we've seen waves and waves of it it's not a straight line and so uh i think that there's there's a huge misunderstanding particularly by policy makers as to as to what's really happening out there there's no there's no indication of um genuine uh, demand driven inflation this is all still um, you know, a protracted supply shock. Yes, it's it's probably taken much longer to work through than, than uh, most people, including ourselves, thought it would do. We expected a supply shock. We didn't realise uh, it was going to be quite so severe. But that's that's because we'd never had a supply shutdown of the scale that we've seen. So, you know, we, we've gone from, from uh, saying, yes, in, inflation is transitory to now, you know, um, calling it TFL, transitory for longer. And therefore, if we get... Um, if we get people like the Fed, and I thought it was interesting, you know, Bostic is saying, I'm keeping an open mind, but I think we should tighten. Well, if we, if we get people like the Fed, who's, you know, uh, who, who's only tool is a hammer and they, they see everything as being a nail... Uh, If they're determined to to tighten, that's that's actually disastrous for capital markets, because the only thing that's actually keeping capital markets at the levels they are, the main thing that's keeping capital levels at the markets they are, is the support that we've seen from the Fed, um, particularly during the pandemic, but basically since the GFC.
1: Paul, I'm sure there's a London Transport joke in the the TFL there, (laughs) but I'll just push on because I want to focus on the bullwhip effect because what we know from that is manufacturers, wholesalers are trying to get around some of the, the issues they're facing in the supply chain by ordering really early which means they're not quite sure of the demand, but they're ordering just in case. And they're also placing big orders so that they have enough product in case the demand happens to be there in the next couple of months. What this means potentially is that they could have an overhang of inventory, that they really don't have a handle on the demand story, and also potentially that some of that product just doesn't come through either. So very uh, choppy, uh, choppy action that they're going to see in performance is this an environment then, where, as we talk about interest rate hike, that they're going to be facing enough uncertainty with inventory overhang choppy uh, demand forecasts, that they also have to weather some form of tightening by a central bank?
2: Yeah, I think it is, and I think you know what we have to remember is um, prior to the GFC, then really you know financing of the economy happened through primarily through commercial banks. They were the biggest player. Since the GFC. Then the biggest player has been governments, and um, the the biggest factor in that has been this growth in the in the Fed balance sheet from um, you know half half a trillion dollars to uh, now getting on towards ten trillion dollars. So um, the, the it's it's really. Um, two parts to it. it. It's it's will governments keep putting money into the economy because we're dependent on you know governments for, for credit creation now, and will they keep putting money into capital markets? It's it, it's two different paths. And what was really interesting is that when we saw these uh, the debt ceiling debates and crisis going on in the States, both of these actually ground to a complete halt. And that's why, that's why September was so ugly. You know, you, uh, you look at September and as, uh, as Leonard Cohen would say, I've seen the future and it's murder. Uh, if, we, if we don't get governments, A, supporting the economy because it still needs that, and B, supporting markets, well, both of those are going to have a problem.
0: Paul, Amazon is offering um, £1,500 if you'll go and work in Merseyside. Um, now, I Could imagine that's because people don't want to go and work in Merseyside, but I suspect it's more to do with the fact, uh, it's probably more to do with the fact that actually they can't get the workers. And, And we're seeing all of these companies now starting to offer sign on bonuses and higher wages just to get the staff to come. Paul, as we know, inflation is not necessarily about just price hikes, it's about The psychological effect on consumers and about expectations going forward. The fact that we're now seeing these price hikes bleed into higher wage settlements and demands, doesn't that suggest that you may have to adjust your TFL statement to make it even further out on the curve if these inflation expectations become embedded?
2: yeah good morning Jeff it, it could push it further out down the curve but i uh, but actually you know what we're seeing is um we've got a, we've got probably a different reaction to that to the than just about anybody else in the world has which is people are saying well you can't get low paid workers to come and you know work at Amazon work in you know fast food restaurants or whatever so that has to be inflationary we're, we're actually wondering more if if people haven't just readjusted their 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 life views, you know, um, during the pandemic, and uh, if if people are not willing to, you know, go to Merseyside to work to am- work for Amazon to get fifteen hundred quid a month actually that's not necessarily inflationary but that's potentially deflationary because it means that people are, are you know unwilling to make a whole bunch of sacrifices just to get a few quid more in their pocket and that's that that has a negative um feedback a negative loop into future spending so actually that that again that's transitory transitory for longer maybe but, uh it, longer term that's structurally deflationary and and you know the, the key thing here is if we look at uh you know implied break evens going forwards 10 15 20 years 30 years and using synthetics we can go forwards 50 years if we look at those they're actually still telling us that there is no inflation coming for uh, for the rest of our lifetimes and, um, and and so you know the comments you were making earlier about people moving down the uh, the bond curve they absolutely should the uh, the the longer term bonds uh you know if the if the implied break evens are right longer term bonds are a great place to be right now
0: yeah and i wanted to pick up on that because um what are the risks uh you know you might be fine owning the 30 year treasury in the states i don't know we'll see where we go on the debt debate in the united states and what the fed does going forward but we just had a, um, a, a story at the top of the programme suggesting that we will get the payment now uh, of this uh, offshore bond by Evergrande. Um, do we all breathe a sigh of relief here as the markets appear to be doing? Or do we still think that there are some reasons to be worried about a disorderly default in the Chinese property sector?
2: I, I think the uh, the Chinese property sector was was probably always going to be managed in a way that was going to be relatively orderly. Um, I mean, it's 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 a huge issue, but then you know I think the Chinese government are on top of this. Um, I think there are probably other default issues and other credit issues out there that will gradually come to the fore in China and everywhere else uh, that that'll be much less you know manageable. So I think we'll start. You know, to to to, to me, this is. This is sort of the early warning sign. This is canary in the coal mine for, you know, systemic credit problems that are they're probably going to dog us for, for you know, uh, a while to come. Evergrande didn't sort of come out of nothing. It came out of the fact that there have been problems in the Chinese property sector for for over a year or so because of the the Chinese government deciding to stop the exponential growth of the property sector causing even bigger problems in future. And they've, they have sort of half tackled it and half kicked it down the line. Uh, but it's, it's, it's more of a sort of sign of the temperature that there are, you know, really indebted companies globally that are, that are going to be facing some problems in years to come because they're just not going to be able to achieve the growth that they need to to support the debt levels they have.
0: Paul, so, so we, you've given us a view on where you think we ought to be on the, uh, the bond curve. Um, what mm-hmm. else do you fancy for a bit of a punt at the moment as we run up to the year end and we possibly get a, a, seasonable, a seasonal equity rally? So I think I mentioned last
2: time that we, we actually uh, we, we thought Alibaba was worth watching and we thought China Tech was worth watching. Um, they are, but they're 25% less worth watching than they were um, when we spoke a month ago. Um, what I'd be more inclined to look at now is maybe Chinese domestic companies because they, they haven't had quite the same rally that uh, the Alis and the, and the China Tech have and even the US Tech. So um, I think, you know, the sectors that have always benefited from liquidity, technology, Chinese Tech, they're going to do well. But Chinese smaller companies are actually a really interesting place to look at right now because I think there's a bit more value there.
0: And we, we you know, China's turning on the liquidity tax for blast. They'll benefit from that hugely. Paul, we're going to say goodbye, but thanks uh, for joining us this morning. Good to, to, good to catch up and get your opinions. Paul Gambles, co-founder and managing director of MBMG Group. Uh, Renault just coming through with some numbers here. Let's have a look. Third group, uh, uh, sorry, third quarter group revenue amounted to uh, nine billion euros. That uh, looks to be down thirteen point four percent, off fourteen percent. At uh, what they call constant scope and exchange rates, the uh, companies told us that the group order portfolio in Europe at the end of September stands at a record high uh, for fifteen years and represents two point eight months of sales the uh, company says um, it will uh, confirm its guidance to reach a full year group operating margin rate of the same order as in the first half of the year but sting in the tail here the uh, company says the lack of components the group um, anticipates uh, loss close to 500,000 vehicles for the year. So like many of these uh, auto manufacturers, uh, they are grappling with supply chain challenges and shortages of semiconductors. And that has had an impact on the gross number of vehicles produced. Uh, The uh, company, let's see if I can find you something else that's uh, worthy of mentioning. The the group says it's to achieve positive automotive uh, operational free cash flow uh, excluding a uh, change in working capital requirements for the fiscal year here. So, um, Charlotte, the, the company here reporting a decrease in sales of about 22% compared to 2020. Um, clearly, there are some challenges still for this French automaker with the supply chain challenge.
3: It's been one challenge after the other at Renault. As you remember, first, uh, the arrest of Carlos Ghosn, they had to revamp the group, the arrival of the new CEO. But of course, COVID hit in the meantime. And now that we saw just some glimpses of recovery, now that this cheap shortage that is hitting production. And we had this report earlier in the week that uh, the impact for Renault would be greater than expected. So they announced that for the third quarter, it was 170,000 units lost in Q3 due to this cheap shortage. And I say for the whole year, it should be 500,000. Uh, so that's much higher than the previous number that they had given they had given a number of something around 200,000 units uh, of production loss for the year here the number that they give this morning is something closer to 500,000 for the year so it's much much higher than expected even than the report that we had earlier in, in, the, in the year so uh, but as you said they maintain some of their guidances of this positive free cash flow excluding change in working capital so they're maintaining uh, this so they'll be work, working on margins for this um, so so a big challenge therefore look at the mail the new ceo that came on board last uh, just last summer uh, they wanted to change in depth the, the the production model of of Renault and how the alliance works with Nissan of course they wanted to change from volume to margin they've really been working hard on this pushing for the extra investments into EV they came up with some joint ventures in China for example they want to reenter this crucial market so a lot on the table but of course this cheap shortage is really kind of cutting their wings a little bit uh, here, but again, maintaining the city revenue there was down 13% uh, percent against the revenue that was, uh, positive in, in the second quarter. So it's really impacting, uh, their business there, Jeff.
1: I'll pick up there, Charlotte. Uh, stay with us. We'll just uh, bring in a couple more French stories this morning. We'll come back to you. Vivendi has posted a strong growth in the third quarter with nearly €2.5 billion in revenue, beating analyst expectations. The French media group's sales number in the third quarter rose 10% compared to a year before as its paid television unit Canal Plus continued to post strong numbers. The company also spun off its most prized asset, Universal Music Group, last month in what was Europe's largest listing of the year, valuing the label at €45 billion. Meanwhile, L'Oreal's third quarter sales have beaten analysts' expectations, jumping 13% compared to last year amid strong Chinese demand. Uh, Charlotte, let me come back to this. I've just been pouring through the numbers. It feels like it wasn't just China. It was across various jurisdictions from North America to Europe to mainland China, but also across different categories. The company very much targeting salons that have reopened, of course, in uh, recent months, but also some of the luxury end with uh, the high-priced brands that consumers have been seeking
3: and that's really interesting Karen because of course luxury has been one of the engine of growth for a long time for L'Oréal of course with COVID you had an impact of people not wearing makeup as much or perfume and now we see that, that luxury is really roaring back there and sales up 21% and now it is the largest division it used to be consumer products that was the largest division the products that you can find in supermarkets shampoos etc and now it's luxury that is in terms of revenue the, the largest uh, segment of the business uh, and again here they say that the luxury bit is uh, led by um, China. Uh, China has been doing extremely well. Also, retail, uh, retail has been doing okay in that part. And consumer product has been a more more sluggish for L'Oréal but it's coming back and it was already the case in Q2 it's up 3.2% in Q3 and again they mentioned this recovery in makeup in particular NYX and Maybelline doing particularly well professional product doing well you know people have been suffering with salons being closed people have been coming back to the hairdress and active cosmetics also the smallest division the one when they have brands like Vichy or La Roche-Posay has been doing extremely well as well and it keeps going very well It's beat expectations by a mile uh, with their sales up 28%. 28%. So overall, a very good performance there for L'Oréal. As you say, across geographies, North America has been doing very well. Uh, sales up 23%. They mentioned that the US recovery is very much confirmed and makeup, in particular, again, has been one that has been hit uh, the most in the past few quarters, is really coming back through. Uh, Northern Asia up 22%. They mentioned that uh, growth in mainland China in double digit. And Europe, its largest market, of course, has been hit, again, by COVID, by the lack of international tourism, with sales up 7.5%. So they say the, the the overall sales is up 18%. That's way above expectation. Expectations were something close to 8%. So they did uh, very well. And e-commerce, you remember, they've been pushing through this before COVID. Of course, COVID has accelerated the transformation of their business and pushing into e-commerce. Now it makes about 27% overall of their sales. So interesting. They made a comment on price highs, of course, with inflation. And we heard from the CEO, Nicolas Hieronymus, that joined just in May that he they will compensate Cost inflation with measures including price hikes in 2022. So, warning again here that price will go up for some of those L'Oreal products. Um, and in terms of the commenting on the Common Prosperity Policy in China, that we know some luxury stocks have been hit after uh, we saw some concern of what this would mean for spending in China from some of those luxury uh, brands. And he, he said that he, uh, the CEO, said he believes that this policy will benefit the middle class, which makes the bulk of uh, their customers in the region. So they see no concerns on this point, Karen.
0: Let me pick up uh, Charlotte and uh, take us on to Evergrande and we'll catch up with you a little bit later on. So Evergrande has reportedly made a surprise interest payment just days before a deadline on the bond would have plunged the debt ridden property group into default. The news has sent shares in Evergrande along with the broader Chinese real estate sector sharply higher. Emily has the story.
4: China Evergrande has averted default after making a bond interest payment. Mainland media reporting that the developer wired funds to a trustee account on Thursday for a dollar bond interest payment that was due on September 23rd in the amount of $83.5 million. The 30-day grace period was due to expire tomorrow and would have put the company in formal default. We're seeing a relief rally in shares of Evergrande and its listed units today following a more than 12 percent plunge in the property company yesterday as a resumed trade after the sale of its property services unit fell through. News of the payment comes after financial information provider Red reporting that the company had secured a three-month extension on a defaulted bond issue by Jumbo Fortune Enterprises. So the latest developments offer a short-term reprieve as Evergrande had altogether missed $5 bond interest payments. The next deadline is a week from today, October the 29th, the expiry of the 30-day grace period on a $45.2 million coupon payment. I'm Emily Tan in Hong Kong. Back to you.